You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey, humanists, this is Nathan Gilmore, and this is a special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. As many of you know, I spent a week here recently in California, Redondo Beach, at Theology Beer Camp, an event put on by Homebrew Christianity. I met all sorts of cool people that I've only ever heard on the internet before, so that was great. And one of the really special opportunities I had was to interview James Younger, the executive producer of the National Geographic Channel's The Story of God with Morgan Freeman. We were talking specifically about their recent episode about heaven and hell, and as we did so, we got to talk a little bit about how the show was put together, but also kind of got into the ethics of doing a documentary-style show on people's most deeply held beliefs, especially when those things touch on things like possession, exorcism, things like that. I hope you'll enjoy what you hear, and without further delay, uh, here is my interview with James Younger. Listeners, this is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm here with James Younger of The Story of God. This is a television series you can catch on uh, the National Geographic channel, and here at Theology Beer Camp, I had the opportunity to see an episode of it. A uh, lot of fun. James, I want to start, just kind of dig right in. Um, one of the things I noticed artistically about this narrative is that on the one hand, you've got Anchor Watt, which is, in a fairly straightforward sense, the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Then on the other hand, you've got the journey of the Assyrian Christian family in a world that has completely lost its center, not once, but twice. Right. Talk to me a little bit about that, you know, centering and decentering action in this series. I mean, you know, as far as artistic choices, what led you to that dynamic? Yeah, well, it was about, you know, this idea of where do you find, well, this part of the film was about where do you find heaven, you know, and, and, uh, how do you, how do you kind of make it here on earth? And, uh, and so, you know, in, in the, in Anchor Wat, you have this king, uh, who built it you know, had the resources and the time to build this amazing replica of Hindu heaven. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that's a, one king who was a great king with a, you know, vast empire of, of, of workers and slaves to build this thing over generations, probably. Um, and how did the rest of us do that? You know, mm-hmm. most of us don't, we don't have access to that kind of technology, certainly, that kind of resource. Certainly. So we found this this story of I I was a, attracted to the Assyrian Christian uh, church because it's such an old church and I felt like it was very you know it claims to be very closely connected to the actual teachings and theology of Jesus and geographically they've got a, they've got a claim to that they've got a claim to that and I don't know whether that claims any better or worse I'm sure you guys would know better than me but just from um, you know it, it it so to understand and to me that also resonated with the story of jesus himself who was you mm-hmm. know speaking about the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god at a time of turmoil right you know, and he met his doom at a religious center yeah a literal you know place of contact between heaven and earth is where he died right so we i thought well how do you let's let's look at people who are going through that that turmoil in iraq today christians who have this concept that jesus shared of of uh, looking for the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, as, and just hear their story about how they kind of created heaven in their hearts, mm-hmm. you know. Well, like I said, the contrast in this episode, and, I, and I'll have to admit I don't have TV at home, so it's the only one I've seen. I apologize for that. But really the contrast that you explore really fascinated me as I watched this. And another set of contrasts that I noticed was the penultimate and the ultimate 
episodes in the episode, if you will, yeah, this, were yeah. a a shrine or, or at the very least a gateway to the underworld where people sacrificed human beings to the storm gods to appease their capricious wrath. Yeah. And then you immediately follow into that, follow from that into a near death experience that leads the the experiencer yeah. to say that, well, my religion is love. Mm-hmm. And just that stark contrast mm-hmm. struck me. So again, I mean, as you're producing this, as you're putting this together, as you're stringing together these episodes, talk to me about that dynamic between murdering the other and loving the other that informs the end of this episode. Well, so it's, you know, thinking about this, you're talking about the, um, the Mayan, uh, tradition of uh sacrifice to in this case it was to the god chuck yes who's the who's the god of rain and thunder um and sort of i think it's very difficult for us to see that story the way the maya saw it and i i know that from the writings at, at the time that um maya would think it would be an honor to be sacrificed a privilege right you know, to be sacrificed to be given an opportunity to go to the land of Chuck, to right. go to heaven. Dulce et decorum est. Exactly. So you you go forward, and 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 uh, so the, this uh, it, I think you have to kind of take away this. We have this very kind of you know bloody view of sacrifice, and we call it murder in a way. And I think it's, I think yeah, I did many, slip and call it that, didn't I? Yeah, I mean, in some <laughs> cases, and in some cases, I think with captured prisoners, it probably was something equivalent to murder. But in many mm-hmm. cases, it wasn't. It was willing sacrifice. Um, I I don't know for sure. Of course, the the, the skull that we found down there was that what case that was, right? Um, but this idea that you can you can put a foot into heaven in this life. So when we we were thinking about that, we're like, you know, the film is kind of organized into this idea of like the the sense, you know, engaging with heaven and hell, which is the Native American story and the Pentecostal story. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, seeing kind of like the shadow of heaven and hell. And then building heaven and hell is what Anchor Wat and the and the Assyrian Christians do. And then the final act of the film is about trying to go there. And so right. the Mayans went there as they went into the land of Chuck, either dead or alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the story of Krista, who had a near death experience, is a, her her account, her impressions of of stepping into the other into into heaven. Very good. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences contacting these people because I just. I suppose I wonder, especially with the Ethiopic Orthodox folks, the extent to which they were anxious or even maybe even angry about being made a sort of spectacle for Mm. this sort of broad exploration of things. I mean, this is a very self-contained world in which there really are demons, in which there really Mm. are exorcisms, and in which the true cross of Christ really does cast out those demons. Right. And you're coming in with cameras and, you know, saying, can we look at you because you're fascinating? Yeah, I mean, I look. I mean, we we it, it it could seem that way, but I I feel that it's very um, you know, we work very carefully with local producers to make sure we have permission to be there. Mm-hmm. Often, you know, so we have to get permission of of the priests to be there. And I think normally, I would say, if a congregant, if a if a pilgrim like that knows mm-hmm. that the priest is okay with cameras being there. They're mm-hmm. usually okay with it too. Okay, um, I think that's typically the case, and uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think that you know. I think it's only. I think the spectacle 
is only through our eyes. I mean, I think that for them, that's their experience. That's what okay. they do. They're not really putting on a show. That is their lived experience of, of evil and how to get it out of their lives. And, Certainly. And, and so I think it's, uh, I, I, I like to think we treat everybody we film with respect and, um, mm-hmm. And to be sort of voyeuristic like that, I know it may appear voyeuristic, mm-hmm. but I really don't think it, that was the way it was it was done. Well, that's what I was interested in is, I mean, you know, navigating that ethical space because it does yeah. threaten to be that. But I really thought that the, the series was respectful in that, you know, yeah. in that way. So I, I am curious, though. I mean, one of the very first scenes in the episode is the uh, the graduate student in anthropology yeah. nervous because we are intruding on the dead yeah. And I, you know, just because I'm a, I'm an English professor, you know, the first line of any story is going to color the rest of it for me. Um what kinds of good this is where you get to give a commercial for this series. <laughs> what kinds of good come from intruding on the dead? <laughs> well, look, that, this was a I mean, you're talking about Bo Carroll like worrying about whether he should step into this sacred space, this Absolutely. underworld. Which I thought was remarkable that he said that mm-hmm. as an as a both an archaeologist and a Cherokee to mm. have the kind of the, the archaeological and the scientific mind of like, I need to study this, but mm. also think like I shouldn't be studying this. Um, just, I think it's what was so great about that was to realize that I don't think people really appreciate the sacredness of spaces that aren't of their own making. You know, when you go into that cave, it's just a cave with some paintings. Go to the pyramids in Egypt. Ah, some Egyptian dudes who are very rich were buried here and they painted some weird stuff on the walls. You know, but to actually realize that this really meant something right. to people. Um, and going on top of them, the, you know, in, in, the, in, this, in Tennessee, the Cherokee, the ancestors of the Cherokee also built this mound. You know, it was like a kind of an earthen temple, a bit like the Mayan temples. Right. And that space on top was literally closer to their ancestors, closer to God, you know, closer to the spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great to, in, uh, to, to understand that and to and kind of imbibe of the spirit of those spaces. And that's what we try and do wherever we go. Absolutely. Well, once again, I, I, I'm fascinated by this episode. You know, I'd, I'd like to see more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I'd like to ask you, you know, as you produce this whole series, uh, what is, one question that has stuck with you as you've done this, that's troubled you, that's continued to fascinate you. What question do you still think about as you continue to work through the story of God? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> how about the next week's episode, Proof of God? I right, talk about it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this, this is, I think, fa- the most fascinating question is how do people in their own faith traditions prove to themselves or not that their their mm-hmm. God exists. I mean, in many cases, you don't prove. You just have to take it on faith. But how does that process work? How do, how do, how do, um, you know, in, in the, uh, the Proof of God episode, which is next week's episode, we look at, you know, clearly we look at um, the Christian tradition. But we also look at um, a couple of interesting things. One is a, a, a Buddhist monk who does a meditative practice called Tummo. And in Tummo, the goal of it is to manifest the divine within yourself. And when you manifest the divine within yourself, you actually are able to do some pretty incredible things, like change your body temperature, um, withstand some serious physical force. And so that was 
fascinating to see that we went to an ice bar with this with this monk and he meditated and stayed perfectly comfortable at minus five degrees in a light t-shirt and then we also spoke to a scientist um an oxford theoretical physicist who um is a christian and uh and you know was talking about this kind of tension between science and and faith and how many people see it's either science or faith. You know, you mm-hmm. find equations. Is it John Polkinghorne find... by chance? Not John Polkinghorne. Oh, okay. It's... Yeah, I know him. Um, <laughs> his name was Art Louis. Art, I've heard of him. Art okay. He's a, mm-hmm. I guess, a Dutch-born um, mm-hmm. physicist. And uh, he's trying to find an equation that describes life, what life is, or the origin of life. Okay. Just like Einstein wrote an equation that explains gravity and energy and mass mm-hmm. equals mc mm-hmm. squared. He wants to make an equation that defines life. And so we sort of asked, talking to him, Morgan was asking him, if we do this, you know, will we, you know, when you found that equation, will you basically done away with the need for God? If you have mm-hmm. an equation, then why do you need the, why, what's, the, what's the divine spark? And Certainly. Like, no. It's like, he couldn't disagree more. It's like the more you, the more, you learn about physics, the more you understand the universe in mathematical form, the more you see the mind of God. Excellent. Excellent. So it was great. Yeah. Great. Well, listeners, we are running up on time. So I want to thank you, James Younger, for coming on the Christian Humanist Podcast. And we are coming to you from Theology Beer Camp in Los Angeles, California. As you can hear, hopefully, this is an interesting show. Uh, It's on the National Geographic Channel, like I said. National Geographic was one of the sponsors of this event, so certainly we're glad that they allowed me to have this opportunity. And in that same evening, I got a chance to talk with Barry Taylor about the show. Those of you who listen to Barry Taylor know that this is a man with a fascinating story, a former road tech with ACDC. Uh, He is now a theologian, does a lot with the sort of negative theology and the radical theology movements. Uh, And he and I started out talking about sort of the shift in the ways that ancient people and even some people in our own moment thought about heaven and hell to more modern conceptions. Then we moved on to a claim that I'll I'll set up here so that you'll understand what's going on when it gets there. There's a point in the show where Morgan Freeman, who hosts the entire Story of God series, visits a Pentecostal church in New Mexico, and he is clearly moved by the speaking in tongues, the activity of the Holy Spirit, But it's clearly not his own experience. So as he's sort of reflecting on it alone to the camera, talking to the audience, he says, if it's true for you, then it is true. About halfway through this interview, I kind of start with Barry Taylor on that question. We kind of dig into the difference between that notion of truth and the one that we seem to be concerned about when we say that the Donald Trump era is a post-truth era. I hope you enjoy this, and uh, without further delay, now that I've talked for entirely too long, here's my talk with Barry Taylor. So I'm here with Barry Taylor talking about the story of God. This is a series that was screened here at the Theology Beer Camp. And Barry, I, w- I want to jump right in. Mm. What struck me about so many of the scenes in this episode that we watched is just the, the sheer materiality of the entrances to the afterlife. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm steeped in, you know, sort of 20th century demythologizing, you know, heaven is sure. not up. Hell is not down, yeah, yeah, yeah. but these places are on earth. 
I mean, yeah. this is the center of the universe at Angkor Wat. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, how is it that we moderns, late moderns, postmoderns, whatever you want to call us, how do we share a world with places like that and with faithful like that who are still very material that way? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. <laughs> um, I, I, I think on some levels, um, what, what shows like this do is they, they kind of give you a sort of expansive view into the very diverse and complex ways people throughout history have thought about these things. And, you know, there, there was a period there, there are times where our whole conception of cosmology is entirely different, you know? Um, so before the sort of medieval flat, flat world, you know, of Western society with heaven above and earth in the middle, like a, you know, sandwich and old English. And hell below, you mm-hmm. know, um, there, there was a sense in which that was even more collapsed and that you had these sort of portals into, um, environments you know and you go down into caves or up into mountains and mm-hmm. and, and and things like that so so i think what they represent on 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 some level is just how at certain periods of history with available self-understandings people expressed the ways in which they thought reality played out so you know the the sort of culture and anchor what they, they, you know, the buildings and you see it, you know, in, in Gothic cathedrals, you know, Certainly. they just, they're going up, you know, and, and somebody said that, you know, quite often inside Gothic cathedrals, if you pay attention in, in, in the cathedrals of, of Europe, the arches look like trees, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a way of sort of collapsing Certainly. this view of the, the heavens above, you know, but it right. becomes contained. Although by because, that time, Paris theology was already talking about heaven, yeah. not in spatio-temporal terms. Sure. So, I mean, I, that that's what struck me is that well I think it, are, it's not a timeline but it's it's these two it, realities it, yeah, coexisting. It, I see I don't yeah. I mean there's the timeline uh-huh. and then there's the ways in which we tease out these stories and there's always a lag. Sure. You know, so I mean, you have people walking around today who who still believe in a literal heaven and hell. Yeah. In various religious not just a Christianity, you know, whatever mm-hmm. their their particular view of those realities might be. There are people who are literalists. There are people who reject that and go symbolic or metaphoric. There are mm-hmm. people who don't buy it at all. Do you know, do you know right, what I mean? Right. I mean, you know, arguably it's very hard to invoke a medieval notion of hell today when we know that right now what below us is not hell but Australia. Right. It's hard in Los Angeles, but in Ethiopia they are still casting out demons with the I got to look at the name here. Yeah. St. Tecla's Cross. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, and we still handle snakes and, uh, <laughs> yes, and you indeed. know, I mean, and the Vatican still has an exorcism mm-hmm. uh, thing. So oh, yeah. there's with, with always, very standards. there are always <laughs> multiple layers of ways in which we try and handle all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the show, I, I, I think really, it, 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 it tends to be, historic on, okay on some i mean 
you can tell from the episode. Unpack that a little bit. What well, is that phrase it, it, it tends to sort of dig into the ancient idea of religion, I think, you know. So mm-hmm. it goes to a lot of ancient sites. Some that are no longer... I mean, what's interesting about the show we, we screen today, the Heaven and Hell one, is that a lot of the... Um, you know, so Anchor what it's no longer a functioning site. Right, right. Um, it's now a sort of historic tourist attraction mm-hmm. uh, in some sense. You know, other places, uh, the, the, the religious practice is still alive in, in those things. But, but the show sort of digs deep into religions that maybe aren't around mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of explores how they were um, understanding this as opposed to um, – people today who might be around and trying to understand it. But, you know, it sort of digs uh, broadly and deeply into Mm. those kind of things. That's kind of what I meant. And it's a fascinating series, listeners. I mean, I really encourage you to take a look at it. Another question I had, and this was after the uh, New Mexico, I believe, yeah, the New Mexico Pentecostal Church. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman looks at the camera and says, everybody's truth is the truth. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, I, I, I want I want to hear you think about that, because, I mean, that that strikes me as a statement that ethically situates these claims about the spirit and heaven and hell out on the periphery. This is not a central concern. If you believe this, it's fine. If you believe that, it's fine. If if it's your truth, then it's the truth. Yeah. Am I misreading this or? Well, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's it's arguably it's a throwaway comment in a television show. I don't know any of the backstory of his particular views mm-hmm. on, on, on that. I, I, I think on, on, you know, and there are a couple of responses to, to questions about truth, you know, sure. and, and particularly, I know that for a lot of uh, Christians, truth is where it's at. You, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. I do, there's a I do. lot of stuff about, Truth claims, you know, capital T truth, little truth, all sure, that stuff. Sure. Worries and concerns about relativism and all those kind of mm-hmm. things. I would imagine that that one of the things that Morgan Freeman would be wanting to get at in a show like this, which has no uh, agenda of particularity, it's mm-hmm. looking at the story of God uh, throughout the world mm-hmm. in various cultures. So it's not making uh, or attempting to pit one against another. Mm-hmm. It's attempting to say this is how various people in different cultures at different times have experienced and expressed their experiences of the sacred or or of the divine. And on that level, I think you can see a, a, a level of understanding when he says it's true for you. Um as it's true for the worshippers at Anchor Wat that this was the way, mm-hmm. because um, where I where I think about this is in terms of um, I, I I think we sometimes conflate notions of truth and reality. Okay, talk a bit more about and, that. And and I think I, I I think the obsession with truth in contemporary Christianity for me is linked to the cultural shifts that threatened the Christian story in Western society, the emergence of scientific rationalism and empiricism and, and things like that. And I, and I think Christianity got very defensive about and, and tied truth to factuality 
and mm. to to literalism. Certainly. And and I and and I don't I don't think they're necessary. And and I think the in in the collapsed uh, world in which we live, we have to sort of wake up to the fact that none of us have a corner on the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I'll go a step further. There was a conversation this morning, I don't know if we should talk about this or not, about um, living in a post-truth world. Yes, uh, Adam Clark's talk this morning, yeah. we'll be interviewing him later on the Christian Humanist podcast. One of the one of the things that, that, that I find quite interesting is if we take his uh, definition and the, the contemporary definition of post-truth, that it's the preference of... Uh, emotion and personal belief over and against a a objective fact, Mm -hmm. then I would argue that Christianity is essentially a post-truth venture because Christianity tends to function on personal belief labeled as truth and emotional attachment to particular beliefs and ideas at the expense sometimes of objectivity. Okay. And that, and that's where, that's where I'm curious though. This is where I'm curious. Sorry. No, it's all right. Perfectly fine. Um, I guess that's where I'm curious because, you know, we'll just stick with Adam Clark's, you know, focus on post-truth. Yeah. That's definitely a, a term of ethical reprimand. I mean, sure. you know, as a culture, we should not be tr- post-truth. Yeah. But then th- on that, but but then in the same day, you know, yeah. Morgan's telling us your truth is the truth. Yeah. And, so and, and I think again, that, how do we live in those two worlds I, together? I, I, th- I think that's I think that's the paradox of life. All right, is that things become true for us, okay. and they become absolute truth for us, mm-hmm. and then not for other people. Okay, you know, you and I, we might say the Bible is a sacred book. Yes. Somebody else would go, it's just a book. Mm-hmm. And I can argue with them till I'm blue in the face. And I can believe with all of my heart in the sacrality of that text. And it remains essentially my truth. Now, is it the truth? I might say so. Mm-hmm. But in the world in which we live, it will never be the truth for everybody everywhere at all time. Okay. I think those are the things we have to sort of move away from and not worry about so much. So we're talking about different registers of truth here then. I mean, I think there are different registers of truth. Okay. So tell me about the register of truth then that is being reprimanded with the phrase post-truth. Cause again, well, so I, it's, so a, I think, it's a different sort of yeah, sphere ethically. I, 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 right? I think, yeah. And again, I don't want to conflate the, the, all of it down. Cause there, there are some particular cultural associations with post post-truth, Certainly. which is, you know, that, that we're in this world where, um, you know, someone can, can say, outright lies and a whole bunch of people can agree. And mm-hmm. when the facts are presented that that's not true, we go on anyway, <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right. And, and we ignore that. The, the, for me, the problem with, but we it, have it, an instinct at least that when those people say, well, it's true anyway, some people well, do. No, it's well, yeah. And they have, and they do. Yeah. And they continue some people to do, but no, everybody does. That's the well, tragedy. Okay. All right. And when they do, we have a sense you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And yet we all do it in our own way. Okay. And we're blind to the fact, you know, I mean. <laughs> so are we resigning ourselves to that or is there some, some step know. beyond it? Well, we're resigning ourselves to it until we have a larger cultural conversation about how we got here. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Talk it's, a little bit more about well, that. Well, it's like, um, it's not, 
we didn't get here because of the last election. No, not by any means. Do you know what I mean? That that's that's if it, I hope it's a sort of culmination and a moment, and and we're going to get to the other side of it. But that that's a, a, a series of developments within the culture that that are incredibly complicated. I mean, technology plays a role in that. I mean, you think about you think about the fact that um, till the nineteen eighties and the dawn of cable television, mm-hmm. most of us were watching essentially the same television programs at the same time. Right. Uh, NBC, CBS, across the ABC. country, mm-hmm. and uh, everything was condensed into that environment. So right. you had, and you know, we can argue the toss about whether it was biased or not biased and stuff. But everybody was getting essentially the same access to to pretty much the same sort of information. Mm-hmm. Cable television comes along, you start to get more and more and more choice right. and more preference. And, and now you can isolate, well, I like this, I don't like that. Certainly. And you edit out difference and particularity and uh, you fine-tune your preferences to the point where you don't listen to anything you don't agree with. Right. And that's one of the aspects. That come, that's just the technological aspect. That, and, and, mm-hmm. and it's not the technology, it's what their technology allows, which is 500 television channels. So if I want to watch gardening all day, I can watch gardening all day at the expense of anything else. You know, that'll I mean? help you if you do. If I want to what you know, if I want to listen to left wing politics or right wing economics, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can do any of those things. Um, the 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 growth uh, uh, of digital technology and the fact that I can access information unmediated without any authority figure. So mm-hmm. I mean, and this goes back. I, I would argue that you got to go then back with something like that. To the Reformation. I mean, you know, there's that really interesting book by um, Alexander McGrath, Christianity's Dangerous Idea, you yes. know, the Reformation. You know, the fact that one of the underpinnings of Protestantism is the the right of all believers everywhere to read and interpret Scripture for themselves in their own language. That's fantastic. But you get three people in a room and you've got four interpretations. Absolutely. Of, you've got four <laughs> interpretations of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So when we think about post-truth, there are some deep threads that have contributed to this that we may not have even considered. Mm -hmm. And that is that we live in a world where hyper-individualism is the rule of the day. And when it works, it's the freedom for everybody to live their life freed from, you know, the tyranny of constraints from other people or opinions and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. When it goes wrong, it's the tyranny of freeing your life (laughs) free from constraints and living for yourself, not for, 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 for others. So I think, you know, post-truth is a slogan and it points to an iceberg. Mm -hmm. The iceberg's tip is what happened in the the most recent election cycle where it became very apparent that facts sort of didn't matter. Right. Uh, underneath the surface of that is a whole host of stuff that we have to dig up. I would say the same is true of a concept like truth. Okay. Well, Barry, we are running up on time, so I want to pose one more question yeah. so you can tell our listeners to watch this show because I really enjoyed it. Yeah. On The Christian Humanist, we're all about the question at hand. Yeah. You've been involved with the series since season one. Yeah. What big question has arisen that still troubles you from the story of God? Oh, that's interesting. Well, from the story of God television or the story of God in life? Take your pick. Well, okay. 
in the television show, I don't, I, 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 I don't, I'm not troubled by it because I, I, I'm not expecting the show to do my theological work for me. So I, I, I may have biases or prejudices or opinions about how things work and how reality is. Um, I find the show a really interesting and, and at times eye opening insight into complexity and pervasiveness of the quest for meaning. Mm-hmm. I may enjoy or not enjoy what somebody comes up with, but that's my, my right, my prerogative in the world in which I live. When it comes to the story of God in my own existence, I'm deeply troubled by the way in which religion becomes a means of practicing separation, exclusion, and violence, whether it's verbal or physical, uh, in the supposed name of of God. I don't disagree. <laughs> Listeners, this has been Barry Taylor. I'm Nathan Gilmore, and this is the Christian Humanist Podcast. See ya. This is Nathan Gilmore one more time, wanting to thank you for uh, downloading and listening along with us. I also want to offer thanks to Trip Fuller and Nathaniel Welch over at Homebrew Christianity for putting on a genuinely fun event, even for those like myself who are more into the theology than we are into the beer. Special thanks, of course, goes out to the National Geographic Channel, first of all, for letting me talk with James Younger about this show and really have an interesting conversation with him, and also for sponsoring the event, helping it to happen. Listen over the next few days on the main Christian Humanist podcast feed, as well as over on the Christian Humanist profiles feed. I'm going to be posting some other brief audio segments like this one that I was able to record at the event. I had a pretty good time doing it, and I hope you have a good time listening. So for now, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.